We are going to be coming to a place where we start to wrap up our study in the book of Nehemiah today as we get to chapter 13. Uh, this has been a, a continuous study for us since uh, late January, I believe. We did the, um, the Uncommon Sense series and uh, kicked this one off, and I believe uh, we've, we've been in this for about four and a half months. So we're coming close. We've got one more, uh, one more message next week in the book of Nehemiah. After that, the week after that, we are participating in what's called Pulpit Freedom Sunday, in which we talk about uh, the, what the Bible clearly teaches about God's design for marriage. Uh, so that's two weeks from today that we'll be participating in that. But we've got two weeks of Nehemiah left, uh, including this week. So, uh, you know, the book of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah is a story of redemption and uh, reconciliation and restoration, but it's also, it's also a story on how to lead well or not, depending on which way you choose. Whether we realize it or not, every single one of us, no exceptions, every single one of us is called to be a leader in some capacity. If you are a parent, you have an obligation to lead your children, to model Christ-like behavior for your children. If you're a child, let's say you're in grade school, you have the responsibility as a Christian of leading other children by modeling Christ-like behavior rather than conforming to all these social patterns and, you know, fitting in with what all you, you see all these other kids doing and just fitting in and doing what they're doing. When it's not Christ-like, you have the responsibility of setting the example and leading your friends in that capacity. Uh, If you have friends or family members who don't know Jesus, you might not be able to bring them to Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can really bring somebody to Christ, but you can bring Christ to them. You can be part of that whole thing where, you know, somebody's heart is being softened up and they're, they're gradually, gradually starting to take baby steps, at least at some level, in that direction so that when the Holy Spirit's ready, the seed can give fruit and they can be born again. Uh, so in that sense, you are called to lead uh, in that sense, in that regard. We're not to follow in the ways of the world, pursuing things like selfish gain because we're set apart as God's people to pursue nothing other than God's glory. That is our ultimate pursuit in life. And one of the most important characteristics of any good leader is integrity. Everyone, and I mean everyone, even especially, maybe especially the world, uh, everybody recognizing uh, recognizes that there is something really, really wrong when our lifestyle, when our actions don't line up with the words coming from our lips. Just ask William Bennett. Everybody in here heard of William Bennett? He wrote a big book, I mean, we're talking like this thick, called The Book of Virtues. You'd have to know something about virtues to write a book about this thick. I mean, he would be the guy to go to uh, if you wanted information on virtuous living. But he, you know, so he gained a lot of fame from writing this book. But you know, one would think that someone who could write this huge book on virtuous living would know better than to amass an eight million dollar gambling debt. Uh, so you know, uh, we we all recognize that virtues. And vices mixed together about as well as oil and vinegar. You know, if you get oil and vinegar on a plate in an Italian restaurant, you, know, you can sit there and you know whirl your bread around in it, and they're never going to mix. They're always going to be separate. And vices and virtues are the same way. Nobody. The fact is that nobody wants direction spoken into their lives from a hypocrite whose integrity is questionable. 
Now, we've seen in our study of Nehemiah that after the wall was completed, the people uh, thirsted for the word of God. We saw this several chapters back. And when it was read among them, when they, they, they took this whole day where they're just reading it and weeping and realizing, oh, I'm a sinner, it changed their lives when they were exposed to it. And the result was sincere repentance. I believe that they were completely sincere. Uh, their repentance led them to vow to uphold six things uh, back in chapter 10. First of all, they vowed not to intermarry with foreign nations. Secondly, they vowed to uphold the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. Third, they vowed to uphold the law of the temple tax. Fourth, they vowed to provide everything that was necessary for the ministries of the temple. Fifth, they committed to uphold the tithe. And sixth, they vowed not to neglect the temple. And of course, the basis for all these things is found in God's word. And it convicted them. They said, oh, we're not doing these things. So we're vowing to do it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how trustworthy is human devotion to God? What's it really worth? And that answer is going to be revealed when we see how steadfast the people have remained in these vows that they've made to do these six simple things. Because honestly, these six things, they're really not that hard. They're really not that big of a deal. I mean, uh, somebody who is seriously devoted and, and refuses to compromise and is walking with the Lord is, is going to be able to uphold these six things. It's not uh, physically taxing, but it may be spiritually taxing. Uh, But these things aren't difficult for a person of integrity and steadfast devotion to uphold. Now, we all like stories that have a happy ending, right? Everybody likes, uh, you know, uh, happily ever after stories and, you know, somebody rides off into the sunset, uh, stuff that we talked about last week. But if you're looking for a happy ending here in the book of Nehemiah, you're not going to find it. You're going to wish that the story would have ended with the celebration of the wall and the restoration, the reconciliation of the people back in chapter 12, because chapter 13 is the story of a swift and drastic backsliding of the people, a serious uh, compromise on behalf of the people. If we read this through the lens of the New Testament, what we'll see is that this is a picture of any Christian who isn't walking with Jesus. And when we don't walk with Jesus, we do things that compromise our integrity. And when we've compromised our integrity, we compromise our testimony. You know, Jesus said that if we were to abide in Him, if we abide in Him, we would produce good fruit. Good fruit if we abide in him. Sounds pretty simple. It's not that simple. But it sounds simple. It's it's a definite formula. If this, then that. If X, then Y. He also said, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So somebody who's not abiding in Christ is not going to produce good fruit. They will compromise their integrity. When we aren't bearing fruit, we have to examine ourselves. We need to back up and look at ourselves, look at our lives, and determine if we've done something to compromise our integrity. You know, if we're living our lives in a state of perpetual compromise, our lips might be asking for God's blessing and and, and praying out for God's blessing, but our lives are inviting his discipline. The problem actually appears to have begun on the same day as this celebration that we saw last week. The day that they were uh, up on the wall around Jerusalem, dedicating God's work back to him, celebrating God's faithful work among them. So we pick it up. Remember that in the original text, there are no chapter breaks. So this is one continuous story right after uh, chapter 12. One continuous story. Uh, Nehemiah starts out, 
in, uh, on, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, he writes, On that day, same day as the celebration, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now we can't be exactly sure how much time has passed between chapter 10 and this point, how much time has passed since the people took these, these six vows back in chapter 10. But remember, they had taken this oath of both blessing and cursing to uphold this commitment. And yet, what we see here is that they've already broken it. They've already broken it. As this command is being read, the people are looking around and realizing that there are Ammonites and Moabites in their presence. How did they slip in? How did these Ammonites and Moabites slip in? The answer is really pretty simple. Compromise. Compromise. The Israelite men had married Ammonite and Moabite women, and the fathers uh, of of Israel had married their daughters off to Moabite and Ammonite uh, men. Now, this might seem to be confusing. You know, why would God give a command like this in his law where, you know, there should be no Ammonites and Moabites in the assembly? Why would he do that? You know, it might even sound like God is prejudiced since he seems to be giving some sort of preference uh, of some sort to one race over another. After all, what could be so wrong with the Ammonites? What could be so wrong with the Moabites that they couldn't even come into the assembly? You know, in, in our day and age... We, we, we really value equality. That's a huge thing in American culture. We like to view everyone as equal. You know, we've seen the introduction of uh, female referees in sports, which I think is a good, uh, you know, good thing. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, we've seen the separate but equal laws of yesteryear uh, thrown out, as they rightfully should be. Uh, we've seen the American population uh, become much more comfortable with illegal immigration. We've given homosexuals the right to marry which is a subject that we'll be discussing here in just a couple weeks. We've even seen a man get a sex change and compete in female mixed martial arts. What? It's just the craziest, and no surprise, uh, he or she has knocked out every opponent uh, that she's gone up against. No surprise. Yet we love equality. Our culture values equality almost above anything else. And so this passage, this instruction, which was given to Israel, might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because we, it's, it's really kind of hard for us to understand. And, you know, liberal scholars will try their best to convince us, you know, that this wasn't a command from God. What this was was, you know, this was a, a cultural pressure. Prejudice, and they attributed that cultural prejudice to God. Nonsense. Nonsense. This is a command from God. The question we must ask is why God would want his people, the Israelites, to remain separated from the Ammonites and the Moabites. Truth be told, there was actually a very, very good reason for it. The story, the, the history of the Moabites and the Ammonites started back with Lot and his daughters. Uh, you guys know, all know the story of Lot and how he was living uh, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and you know, they were going to be destroyed and so these angels come in and they, they take them out of this, they lead them out of the city so that they don't, uh, so that they're not there to experience God's wrath as well. And as Lot's family was leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's light wife looks back on the city and she's instantly turned into a pillar of salt for her disobedience because she'd been instructed 
do not look back. And so all Lot had was his two daughters, uh, the same daughters that he had offered to this mob the night before, which had sought to defile the angels who were visiting Lot's home. And so as Lot and his daughters sought refuge in, in the hills and in the mountains, his daughters were apparently thinking they were the last people on the face of the planet. And so they took matters into their own hands instead of trusting in the Lord. Ah, that'll preach. They took matters into their own hands. They got Lot, their father, drunk, and uh, they came to know their father, as in know in a biblical sense, if you get what I mean. They knew their father. Uh, they both got pregnant. Both of his daughters got pregnant. And the first child was named Moab. The second child was named Ben-Ami. And so it was from each of these respective lines that the Moabites and the Ammonites originated. But the law not to intermarry with these, two, uh, with these two tribes or these two people groups was given because after Israel had spent all this time enslaved to Egypt uh, and, and they're being led out and they're coming to the edge of the promised land, they came to this land where they were, uh, the land was occupied by the Ammonites and the Moabites. And rather than being a blessing to the Israelites... A lot of ways to do that for people in the desert. Give them some place to live, uh, give them food, give them water. A lot of things that you can do to bless somebody who's wandering around in the desert. But instead, they hired a prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelites. And on his way to curse them, the donkey of Balaam, of course, saw the angel of the Lord standing in its path and refused to pass by this angel of the Lord that was standing there. And so Balaam gets frustrated, and he beats his donkey three times. And after the third time, the Lord caused the donkey to speak to Balaam. Uh, that's got to be pretty humbling to have a donkey turn around and say, what are you doing, man? Why, why are you doing this to me? Don't you see what's in front of me? And so suddenly Balaam saw the angel of the Lord standing in their path as well. And he finally relented once the Lord told him that he was acting in a way that was contrary to the ways of the Lord. Now, this all happened about roughly 900 years prior to Nehemiah's time. And even though uh, these people were continuing to seek the constant undoing, the the, the defilement, uh, the corruption of the Israelites after 900 years, it's still easy for us to look at this and say, well, wait a minute, you know, this, this doesn't seem fair. 900 years is a long time to be mad, a long time to sit under God's curse. But what we need to remember is that God is constantly looking beyond our outward actions. He's constantly looking into the hearts of people and judging people by that. So he sees our motives. He sees the attitudes that we have. And so thus, while we make our judgment on you know, what we see externally, what we see demonstrated on the surface, God's judgments are based on what he sees inside of a person's heart, things that we can neither see nor understand completely. Now, 30 years before Nehemiah, the same problem of intermarriage with the Ammonites and the Moabites was recorded in the book of Ezra, chapter 9. About 30 years after Nehemiah's time, we see again the same issue. The prophet Malachi addresses the same issue, condemning the people of the same thing. And of course, the problem with this is that these other nations worshipped false gods and idols. 
And so that's when the sons and the daughters of Israel married into these other tribes, married into the Ammonites and the Moabites. They were putting themselves into positions which necessarily required spiritual compromise. And when we spiritually compromise, Jesus, you know, we, we, we lose ground. We, we don't lose our standing with Jesus necessarily, but we do lose ground in our faith. We compromise. We, stay, we start taking baby steps toward sin because we want to meet somewhere in the middle with this person that we've got to share a house with. It's a serious thing. See, God never called us to spiritual compromise. Jesus didn't say, you know, kind of try your best to abide in me. You know, one foot in, one foot out will do. You know, just kind of give it a shot and see what happens. He never said that. No, we're to abide in him completely in all of our ways. Not just in some of our ways, but in all of our ways. We're not instructed to, to love the Lord our God with some of our heart, mind, soul, and strength Boy, that would have really caused an uproar. That would have made it easy, wouldn't it? Yeah, everybody yeah, can, can do that, you know, sure. We're not instructed to give him some. We're instructed to give him all, everything. Give him all of our heart. To aim lower than that, honestly, is compromise. And what we see here in Nehemiah is that the Israelites have compromised. Why? We find out in the verses that follow. Verses 4 and 5. Now, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, for Tobiah, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils and the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So what we see here is that one of the priests, Eliashib, who has been appointed to serve the Lord, has compromised his integrity, has compromised the integrity of the temple. And a temple which has compromised its integrity will not bear good fruit. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem among the people because that's what's been going on with one of the people who's been leading the people. Solomon wrote this, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. Read this one with me. He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. And Eliashib has compromised his integrity. He perverted his way. And this is the way it works. As Christians, we can choose to walk in integrity. Or the alternative solution is we can choose not to. It's our choice. But we know that like a good father, God will discipline his children when they refuse to walk in his ways and instead they compromise. The ways of the Christian who walks the crooked path, will eventually be revealed. That's what we saw with Ted Haggard. If you guys remember him, he was buying crystal meth from a male prostitute. You can't do that for long. If you're a legitimate child of God, you can't do that for long before God says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm bringing this to the surface, and this is going to be discovered. Because God loves us too much to let us continue walking on a crooked path. And so Eliashib's days on the crooked path are over. Because God's brought it to the surface. Nehemiah sees what's going on. He's seen the compromises that Eliashib has made in his life. And what we need to understand here is that Eliashib doesn't just represent you know, this, this obscure priest that we don't really know a whole lot about. He represents you. And he represents me. And he represents any person who professes to be a Christian. Yeah, he's a priest. But with the New Testament lens, when we read this through the New Testament lens... We're all priests. Every one of us, 
Every one of us who God has redeemed is a priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 to 20, uh, 23 to 25, makes it clear that Jesus has become the permanent priest, and so the Old Testament priesthood has become obsolete. It's no longer needed. Uh, verse 27 of Hebrews uh, chapter 7 tells us that sacrifices are no longer necessary because Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. But then Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that all Christians are what he calls a royal priesthood. And so every believer, every Christian is a priest. And as such, every believer is set apart for works of worship and ministry and service. And just as priests in the Old Testament were supposed to point people to God, each one of us is called to do the same thing, to lead others toward God in our culture today. So whom does Eliashib represent? You and me. He represents us in the story. Now we might say, well, you know, hey, you know, we're all sinners. Every one of us stumbles. None of us is perfect. And so it's not really fair to condemn this, this compromise that Eliashib has made. Yeah, we are all sinners. Every day. I, I, I sin every day, and, I, and it's a battle every single day. Every one of us sins in some way every day. It's part of this flesh nature that we're trying to get rid of, that we're trying to break away from. We all stumble. We all sin. But we've got to recognize the distinction between incidental sin and habitual sin. Incidental sin is when we sin, and we're like, oh, man, I, I shouldn't have done that. That was, that was a really bad choice. And so we repent. We turn away from it. We change our course of direction. We turn away from our sin. But habitual sin is different, entirely different. It's a much bigger, much fiercer beast to slay. Habitual sin is a sin that we've accommodated, that we've grown comfortable with, that we've allowed into our lives to come in and take up residence in our lives. And it's not something that we have turned away from. This morning in our, um, in our Sunday school, uh, we were talking about uh, how it's so easy for us to say, oh, you know, sin is, it seems like such a small thing. But in, in the study that we're doing, we had to look at these other verses where sin uh, is given different synonyms. Any of you guys remember some of the synonyms we got for sin? Rebellion, that's one. Wickedness, evil. Yeah, those are, those are great. That's perfect. Uh, so sin, there's no such thing as a small sin. There's no such thing. It, it, the, the word sin is small, so maybe in our minds we, just kind of, we kind of get used to that word and maybe comfortable with that word, but I'm not comfortable thinking, oh, I'm, I'm guilty of wickedness. I'm guilty of rebellion. I'm guilty of evil. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act, where we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. It is an insult to his holiness. So let's say that there is a police officer who watches the same road day in and day out, just watching for people speeding. And uh, one day he catches this one guy on his, uh, his radar gun going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Now, 
let's be honest, we, we all know that we can usually get away with going uh, up to five miles an hour over the speed limit. In fact, in Caleb's driver's ed class, they tell him, uh, you can usually get away with going up to five miles an hour over the speed limit. When I was growing up, the saying was, uh, nine, you're fine, 10, you're mine. So, you know, I, I grew up thinking, yeah, as long as I'm not going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, I'm, I'm good. Uh, but there's a, a, a huge percentage difference between going 65 and a 55 and going uh, 25 and a 15, you know, like a school zone. Uh, and so, so there's this cop who, who catches this guy going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Now, 15 miles an hour is pushing it. Five miles an hour we can get away with, 15 miles an hour is pushing it. And so when the guy's pulled over, he says, you know, I'm, 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 so, I'm so sorry, officer. I, I, I've been driving this road for nine straight years, and this is the first time I've, I've gone that fast. This is the first time I've needed to be pulled over. I know what the speed limit is, and I, I didn't mean to be going that fast. Now, if the cop's in a good mood, uh, he, he's probably going to give you a break. Probably, maybe. The chances are at least good. But let's say that the next day, let's say that he does give the guy a break. And the next day, he catches the guy doing the same thing. And he catches him doing the same thing the day after that. And the day after that. And the day after that. At some point, the cop's going to say, I gave this guy mercy, and he's just abusing my mercy. At some point, he's got to realize that that's what it is. It's a habit that's abusing the grace that was given by the officer, and it needs to be disciplined, maybe even harshly disciplined. And that's what Eliashib has done. This was not an incidental sin. This was a habitual sin. It's a sin that he's grown comfortable with, and he's even made accommodations in the temple for. Tobiah, on the other hand, uh, yeah, he represents the Ammonites, but he represents something more than that. What he really represents in the context of this narrative is what we refer to as the flesh. Tobiah represents the flesh, the carnal desires that we have to align ourselves with the world's value system where we're seeking our glory rather than God's glory. Uh, so instead of aligning ourselves with God's value system, we, we align ourselves with humanity's value system because the flesh is sitting there nagging at us and looking for just an inch so that it can take a mile. And so Tobiah represents the urge to compromise in our lives. So what's he been doing since the beginning of the story? What's Tobiah been doing? I mean, we've seen him several times. He's just been getting in the way. He's, he's been nagging. He, you know, he's tried to prevent Nehemiah from reaching Jerusalem. He tried to prevent the wall from being restored and completed. Similarly, the flesh sets itself up in the way of our redemption. Jesus said that nobody can come to him unless they're drawn to him by the Father, and the flesh resists. The flesh says, no, that doesn't make any sense. You don't want to give your life away. Tobiah has done everything he can to corrupt what God has redeemed and restored. And while he hasn't defeated Nehemiah or the restoration of Jerusalem, he's done everything that he can just to get in the way and exhaust Nehemiah. And that's what the flesh does. It'll slow things down. It'll get in the way. That's exactly what Tobiah has done. That's exactly what the flesh does. And so what do we have here? This is a scandal. This is serious stuff. Eliashib allowed his family to intermarry with the family of Tobiah, contrary to this vow that they had made just a couple chapters ago. But the scandalous part is that Eliashib somehow justified it to the point that he allowed Tobiah to actually move in to the temple. He didn't just intermarry into the family. That, that was a baby step. The serious stuff is Tobiah has moved into the temple, into one of the storage rooms, where the stuff for the Levites is supposed to be saved and stored. 
And in fact, you know, that, that's what we see here. He, Tobiah gets a room in the temple, in the, place, uh, in the place of the things that were supposed to be sacred and devoted to God. We find the presence of the enemy, the flesh. And oh, how the flesh loves to convince us to justify sin. Oh, it's just a little sin. Just a little sin. It's not, not a big deal. Just a little sin. The flesh loves to compromise and causes us to lose sight of the value of walking in integrity with the Lord. So not only did this completely violate the law of Moses, but man, what about these other Levites who are supposed to have these supplies in the storehouse? They were defrauded. They were just forgotten about. Why hadn't Nehemiah done something to prevent this from happening in the first place. We find out in the next verse. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, the first part of verse 6. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. Now, Nehemiah told us back in chapter 2 that it was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, that he had requested permission to go down to Jerusalem for the first time. And so here, 12 years later, Nehemiah has gone back to visit the king. You'd you'd assume he was his cupbearer, so they were probably buddies. You know, they, they had a close relationship. Now, we don't know exactly how long he was gone while he went to visit the king, how long he wasn't in Jerusalem. Uh, that really is, is kind of an arbitrary thing. It doesn't matter. Most scholars believe that when Nehemiah returns here, he's probably in his 50s or 60s when he, when he returns to Jerusalem and finds that the integrity of the city had been so badly compromised. So if Eliashib represents you and me, Christians, and Tobiah represents the flesh, and the city of Jerusalem represents the place where God wants to dwell. What does Nehemiah represent in this story? He represents none other than Jesus. He represents Jesus himself. Think about it. He was sent by the king to restore the place where God wants to dwell. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's overcome the intimidation, the persuasions, the obstacles that the man who represented the flesh has tried to use to impede the restoration of God's dwelling place. Nehemiah is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's a a Christ character in this narrative. And so with all that established, what we see is that this is really a story that's a contrast between the type of fruit that we will bear when we are abiding in Jesus and the fruit that we bear apart from him. When he's gone, trouble, compromise. When he's not in the presence of the priest and of the city, there's compromise. Nehemiah has been away, and so this gives us a picture of a person who's been redeemed by God. They are a legitimate child of God, and they've committed their life to God, but they are not walking in the presence of God. They are not walking in the presence of Jesus. This incredible backslide is really a story of the the futility of, of human devotion to God. Try as a person may to maintain devotion to God while they're not walking with Jesus. They will fail every single time and they will fail miserably. And so what we see is, uh, is the type of fruit that we bear on our own, apart from Christ. Paul said, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? That's from 2 Corinthians 13.5. 
So don't just assume that Jesus is in you because you said a sinner's prayer at some point in your life. Take a step back and look at what kind of fruit is coming out of your life. Ask yourself this. This is a good question. Ask, ask yourself this. Can my life and my Christian testimony withstand even the fiercest scrutiny? We'll see how Nehemiah reacts to this discovery of compromise in the temple. Verses 6 to 9. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that, there's that word, not just the sin, the evil, learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense." Now, of course, this, uh, this should remind us of something. He goes into the temple, mad at what he sees, and so he starts throwing stuff around. Once again, you know, we, we know that Jesus reacted similarly on two occasions. So once again, we have a parallel between Nehemiah and Jesus. So instead of just saying, well, you know, Eliashib, uh, you really shouldn't have made this compromise with Tobiah, but, you know, whatever, what, what's done is done. No, Nehemiah does something about it. And so he takes all of the possessions of Tobiah and throws this stuff out of the temple. In today's day and age, we'd say, you know, like if, if, a, if a couple divorces, you know, the wife will throw the husband's possessions all out on the sidewalk. And that's what we see going on here. But, but even, uh, you know, all of this stuff, but even that was insufficient, doing all this, throwing stuff out. That was insufficient because the room still smelled like Tobiah. So Nehemiah orders Tobiah's former room, now former room, and the other rooms of the temple to be cleansed. The principle here is pretty simple. If compromise, and if the presence of evil does not upset you, does not anger us, there's really only one explanation. It's because we are way too comfortable with the presence of evil. The image of cleansing the temple is a reminder to us to walk with integrity so that we're walking in a way that's pure because our lives are, are lining right up with our lips. Our lips are proclaiming God and our lives are too. Our actions and our words don't conflict. Instead, they, they complement. They, they work together. See, it's, it's so easy to compromise. And this is exactly how evil works. Compromise. Compromise. It asks for middle ground, baby steps, not, not a huge leap from, you know, walking uprightly to, to walking in evil, but just a, just a baby step. You know, you, you don't have to go all the way over there. You just, just take a little step. That's okay. You, you can keep one foot in and one foot out and that'll be okay. Compromise asks for middle ground. It doesn't take this giant leap. What started with Eliashib allowing his family to intermarry with Tobiah's family, might look like just, you know, kind of a small sin, a small compromise, a small violation of the law of Moses, but it results in the compromise of the place where God wants to dwell. We'll try to find a way to justify giving into the flesh, and, you know, we'll say, ah, you know, it's just a small step, small sin. It's just a baby step. But we need to understand that there is no such thing as small sin. All sin is worthy of God's wrath. The full outpouring of God's wrath. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, he says, if you sin, you will die. 
He's not talking about spiritual death there, I don't think. He's talking about physical death. He's saying all sin is worthy of death. All sin is worthy of death. And as we've seen in our Sunday school room, uh, our Sunday school study, uh, mercy is a choice that God makes. It's not an obligation. It's not an obligation. So it might look like a small sin, but we need to understand there's no such thing. All sin condemns, but habitual sin is a very serious issue because the Lord will not bless the crooked path. Wage a ground war on incidental sin, sin that you, know, you, you accidentally do and you realize, and you, so you repent. Wage a ground war on that, but launch a nuke when it comes to habitual sin. Blow it up. Get rid of it. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. It's serious stuff. He's not literally saying to cut it off, by the way, because if a person's sinning with their right hand, you cut it off, they're just going to sin with their left hand. You know, and, and how do you cut off your left hand? I don't know. You know that, that's going to be kind of weird. What he's saying is, get rid of it. Violently. Take violent, drastic measures against sin. Jesus has redeemed us, and he's made us free, but habitual sin will bind us, and it will prevent us from walking with Jesus with integrity. And so it'll prevent us from experiencing victory in our lives. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. All sin is serious business. So do something about it. Take action against it. The integrity of God's work is a hill that every single one of us has to be willing to die on. When it comes to God's work, integrity is so important. And that's why Jesus said that if we want to follow him, we have to die to ourselves. Die to yourself if you want to follow me. That has to be a hill. The integrity of his works has to be a hill that we're willing to die on. There is nothing, nothing in this life that is worth compromising our walk with Jesus for. Nothing. Nothing. Nehemiah isn't done. Let's continue. Verses 10 to, uh, 10 to 12. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So what we see here, remember those six vows that they had made? Here we see the violation of another four of those vows that they had made. They, they've compromised on another four of these vows. First, they had vowed to tithe, but obviously that hadn't been going on for a while. And so without this tithe, the Levites, who were supposed to be serving and ministering, were forced to go out into their fields because they needed to find some means of eating and providing for their families. Secondly, they'd vowed not to neglect the temple, but obviously there's just been a ton of neglect of the business of the temple uh, by the people. Third, they had vowed to participate in the temple tax, but they haven't been doing that either. They haven't been doing that either. And finally, they vowed to provide everything necessary for the ministry of the temple, but now there was no place for them to put all of these things that were necessary for ministry. And so they weren't doing that either. So we've seen compromise on five things, and we're going to see the sixth one. They, they compromised on that too. We'll see that next week. And so Nehemiah chews out the officials. He gets in their faces and he says, why has the house of God been compromised? Why has it been forsaken? Of course, neither the temple nor the people were just physically compromised. That's what we see on the outside. They've been spiritually compromised as well. 
And so when Tobiah moved in, why didn't somebody prevent it from happening? Why didn't somebody speak up? Why wasn't Eliashib immediately removed from his office? Maybe because they were intimidated by the, the power that, uh, that Tobiah had. Maybe, maybe they just didn't care that much. We can only speculate. And so this is like, you know, if you imagine one of your friends, one of your good friends, uh, you know, he's going to church and he, he's, he's reading his Bible regularly and before you know it, you know, he stops going to church and stops reading his Bible. Maybe he starts, you know, uh, reading books about some other religion or maybe he just, uh, you know, stops reading any books at all about anything pertaining to God, anything other than studying God's Word. And what happens is these friends don't say anything. They're like, Cool, man. You, you, you study in Mormonism or you study, become a Jehovah's Witness? Cool. You know, what, whatever works for you. They just let it happen. They just let it happen. They let the compromise go on. And when, when instead, they should have brought this to somebody's attention. Action, immediate action was needed here. And so Nehemiah might be late, but better late than never. He comes in and he takes action. He holds the officials accountable for their actions or lack thereof, and he restores order in the temple. But there's one more thing that he does. Verse 13. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. So obviously for this Time, we don't know how much time, but for some time Eliashib has been the one in charge of the storehouses. But Nehemiah makes the wise move of delegating this responsibility to several others. And we should note, by the way, Nehemiah never gets in Eliashib's face and says, You know what? You are done as a priest. I am you you're out of here. Remember that this is a picture of you or me or any Christian walking in sin, walking apart from Jesus. But what a great comfort to know. He never says, that's it. Toby, you have sinned for the last time, and I am done with you. I am cutting you off. He never says that. He never says, I've had enough of you. I, I, I hereby disown you. He knows. Listen. He knows what our devotion to him is worth. He knows the futility of human devotion to God. He knows that on our own, by our nature, we are faithless. We are completely faithless creatures. And that's why faith is the evidence of things that aren't seen with the human eye. Think about that verse for a second. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. Meaning, the fact that we have faith is evidence of something that your eye can't see. Our faith is evidence of God's existence because we are, by nature, faithless and self-centered people. And that's why the psalmist who wrote, chapter, uh, wrote Psalm chapter 119 said, Make me understand the way of your precepts. Make me understand the way of your precepts so that I will meditate on your wonders. It's because on our own, we will never understand. We will never understand the way of God's precepts. He says, I shall run the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. I will do this because first you have done that. There's a cause and effect relationship. I will do this because you've done that. He knows, the psalmist knows that on our own, we won't follow God's commandments unless he does something to change our hearts. 
And that's why he goes on to say, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I will delight in it. In other words, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to make me do it because my nature is not going to let me do this. But God, you can make me do this. If God doesn't make this change in us and causes us to walk in the path of his commandments, it's not going to happen. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Why does he say that? Because our flesh nature is constantly seeking dishonest gain. You get the point. Our devotion to God is weak. Our devotion to God is fragile. And every single one of us is unfaithful. But... Paul says this in his letter to Timothy. He says, second letter to Timothy, second Timothy chapter two, verse 13. He says, if we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. You see, when we're redeemed by Jesus, he takes up a dwelling in us permanently and our spirit is fused together with him so that he is one with us, so that we are indistinguishable and inseparable from him, so that if he were to deny us, he'd have to deny himself, because he's one with us. And this is such a wonderful, wonderful truth, and that's why Jesus never says, you know, Toby, I have just had it with you, man. You and in, in your crooked walking, I, I'm done with you. Jesus never says, I've had it with you, to someone he's redeemed who's failing to walk with him in integrity, who's walking on the crooked path, because to deny them, he would have to deny himself. You see, this is really important to understand. God's discipline is never designed to cast his people away. It is always always, always, to draw us back into fellowship with him and his people, to restore us in his ways, to take us off the crooked path and put us back into walking with him. We might lose responsibilities for our unfaithfulness, that's what we've seen here with Eliashib, but we don't lose our position as a part of this royal priesthood called and owned by the Lord. What God's people may intend for evil, while we're walking on the crooked path, while we're backsliding, God will ultimately turn around and use for their own good. Nehemiah ends this passage in a somewhat typical fashion. You know, there have been a couple times as we've gone through this study that we've seen him just in the middle of a narrative just blurt out this prayer, and that's what he does here, writing in verse 14. He says, Remember me for this, O my God. And do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. That word loyal in Hebrew is actually the same word as uh, as faithful. And that's what God wants from his people. Loyalty. Faithfulness. And we don't do that. We don't find that we produce good fruit or faithfulness in our lives by relying on our devotion to God. The secret to remaining faithful is walking by grace closely to Jesus, staying in his presence, knowing that he's faithful to us. Listen, it's so, so easy to backslide, and it takes work, persistence, and dying to the impulses of our flesh to be faithful. But faithfulness is what pleases God. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says that a servant must be found faithful. 
So this story is really a reminder of how important it is for us to walk in integrity, to walk in faithfulness. It's a reminder of how important it is to deal with the sin in our lives and not to compromise with the flesh, not to find some type of middle ground with the flesh. Because every single one of us is called to serve the Lord in some capacity. He's called us and he's gifted us to serve him, to work for his kingdom in some capacity. But we have to do it with integrity, sticking with it and not relying on our own devotion to God because our devotion to God is weak, but by relying on his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are some wonderful truths that we find in this passage. And we see, Lord, that the hymn writer who wrote Great is thy faithfulness, knew exactly what he was talking about. Lord, we thank you that you are so faithful to us. We thank you, Lord, that despite our faithlessness, you love us, and when we walk off of that path, Lord, you discipline us, not to cast us out, but to draw us back into fellowship with you. So, Lord, I pray that we would see the importance of walking in integrity, walking by grace with your Son, Jesus in order that we may abide in him and bear much good fruit in our lives. May you be glorified in all that we do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.